Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Alright, so for this particular Sunday, I had a long passage that I wanted to read for scripture reading that I thought would be basically impossible to get through in that time. But now there had been a, an additional opportunity made in regard to that, and that I am scheduled to open the service as well. So the scripture reading that I'm uh, reading for you today is a combination, and indeed an additional to that, of what will be done for the call to worship, as well as the scripture reading. And so the call to worship is going to be Exodus 33, 7 to 11, and the scripture reading is going to pick back up in verse 18. But since I'm not under as much of a time constraint in regard to this particular podcast, I'm going to read to you Exodus 33, 7, all the way down to Exodus 34, 9, and get at the beauty of the passage that is there. So this is a passage in which right after Moses has interceded on Israel's behalf with Yahweh such that Yahweh will indeed go with them and will not consume them in the wilderness for their sin of the golden calf. Yeah, Moses continues to ask for favor, continues to ask for grace in regard to being able to see Yahweh's face, to behold his glory perfectly. And Yahweh says that he can't give entirely of that request. His face cannot be seen, but he can see his rearward portions. He can see his back. And in seeing his back, he will then see more of the glory of Yahweh than many other man has up to that point. All of this is related to the idea as well of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting where God's glory resides among the people, which indeed is where we start as we get going in Exodus 33, 7. The scripture reads, And Moses pitched the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses and all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend, and he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of man, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, 
See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in thy sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, no, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto them, If thy uh, unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tablets, which thou breakest, and be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stones like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Well, if you would, please turn with me to John chapter 1. Today we are looking at verses 14 to 18. I think... Mr. Bobley would be happy to let all of you know that he was deeply engrossed in his reading of the bulletin and not actually asleep. 
and now we get to be deeply engrossed in the reading of scripture. This passage picks up on what we ended on, how with the exclusive identity of the Son, he shares aspects, not of the particular exclusiveness, but as he is the Son of God, so he allows us to be adopted. And so that exclusive identity and the things that he has allows him to continue to bring us into the fellowship with God. We read John 1, 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Father, we do ask that you would help us today. Help us to think through what is being taught and come away refreshed, ready to worship you in the face of Jesus Christ in whom we behold your glory perfectly. Lord, guide what, we, what I say here today, so that it would help clarify the meaning of this passage and the beauty of this passage, so that we may rejoice in you and rejoice in the revelation through your word, both written and incarnate. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of the glory of God? If you're like me, one of the things that's going to immediately come to mind is majesty, splendor, when I'm thinking in regard to increasing awe in my own self for God, I'm going to passages like Isaiah 40, Job 38 to 41, being reminded of how awesome and wonderful he is in regard to his power and control over all things. And that is certainly a significant part of his glory. But when Yahweh, when the Lord shows his glory to his people, this isn't what he focuses on. He subverts our expectations. We saw that this morning in Exodus 34. Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord, and he figuratively speaks of himself as having a face and a back, and says that you cannot see my face, you can't see the fullness of my glory, but you will see my back. But what is the glory that Moses sees? It's the proclamation of his character. 
It's a proclamation of the Lord's character as the Lord passes by and says what his name is and says that he is faithful and just. That he is full of goodness and faithfulness, of grace and truth. That he's going to be just in all things, but he also is going to be merciful to his people. If you stay on the same mount, you go to 1 Kings 19, you have Elijah also in a cave on Mount Sinai and the Lord passing by him. There's thunder, lightning, there's fire, there's wind, there's earthquake, but the Lord's in the whisper, showing himself to the prophet in his gentleness, not in his power and majesty. And then there's here, in our text today. Again, subverting the expectation of what we'd expect. If in the incarnate word, that is the word made flesh, taking on human nature, we are to behold the glory of the Lord, we might think of the transfiguration, when his face literally shone. We might think of the resurrection, all the power that's present there, particularly within John's emphasis on signs, which he does say show the glory of Jesus, we think maybe about miracles. But in this passage, the emphasis is on none of those things directly. But instead, again, on the character and mercy of Jesus, character and mercy of Yahweh. The passage before us has a thesis with three explanations of how it's possible. And the thesis is verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And the word was made flesh. This is so far to this point in the Gospel of John, the most definitive statement of what we call the incarnation, of the Son of God taking upon himself a human nature. There's been hints of it in regards to the light shining in the darkness, or the light coming into the world, but now it is explicitly, without any doubt, stated as the word was made flesh. The creator on whom we depend, on whom all of creation depends, has added to himself a frail and dependent human nature. He's there whether in the womb, whether in the manger, whether walking about or dying on the cross, he now has this frail, dependent human nature in which he is acting. And then we are told that this word made flesh dwells among us, dwelt among us. I understand that it makes very awkward English, but it would be appropriate to translate this as the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, tabernacled is not typically a verb, 
But this is the verbal form, the action form of the noun for tabernacle in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For both the tabernacle and as we read in Exodus 33, the tent of meeting, where God's glory was to dwell among his people. Now, this is all trying to get back in the tabernacle imagery of the Old Testament to the way it was always meant to be, the way it originally was. When God walked with man in the cool of the day, where there was no barrier of separation, but the glory and presence of Yahweh was just there. Adam and Eve had the presence and the ability to worship so the tent of meeting comes in and God's glory dwells outside the tent, outside the camp of Israel, but where Moses could go in and speak face to face. And when the tabernacle is built, it's built with all sorts of garden imagery. Pomegranates and angels reminding us of the garden, reminding us that this is a mini Eden spot where God's glory is again dwelling with his people. And from the tabernacle, it goes to the temple. And John here then says, from the temple, it goes to Jesus Christ, where God's glory dwells, where God's glory dwells perfectly and far more personally than has ever been the case since Eden. It's not a building or a tent, but a living person. In chapter 2, Jesus himself describes his body as the temple. As he drives the money changers from the temple, he then says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. There in John 2, 19 through 21, Jesus shows what John also says, that his body is a temple, a tabernacle, where God's glory personally dwells among the people. From this climactic moment of that theme, it then goes into the church and individual Christians and ultimately in the entirety of New Jerusalem, the new creation. Where using the same terms, John describes in Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. But here the emphasis is not on that culmination or on how we are temples ourselves, but upon the climax that makes those two other things possible in Jesus being the tabernacle of God's glory, which becomes the very specific point. John 1.14 again says, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. 
just as there is a glory cloud that comes down into the tent of meeting or into the tabernacle or into Solomon's temple. So too, there is a physical glory, a presence of glory, I should say, within Jesus, in which we behold his glory, a glory that is of the only begotten of the Father. Now, some of your translations out there may have something like unique or one and only. I do personally prefer the translation only begotten, but both of them communicate the same idea John's trying to get at, which is that Jesus is unique, that he has an exclusive identity. We are adopted children of God who believe, but he is the only one who was, for, who was fathered He's the only one that can be said to be begotten of God. And so the only begotten of the Father, that's the glory that we ultimately behold in regard to the exclusiveness and uniqueness of Jesus. If this uniqueness and exclusiveness was not there, then this passage would then not make any. As we read from Michael Reeves last week, a mere creature could never share with us what he himself had never known. But he's not a mere creature. He is the only begotten son of the Father. He alone has that title. He alone has that identity. But here's where our expectations begin to be subverted. This is the moment where we'd expect John, with his emphasis on signs, most of which are miraculous, to then talk about those miracles, talk about those signs, pull out the glory of Jesus in regards to those beautiful moments of power. But instead, he finishes the verse with the words, full of grace and truth. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you, you would notice if you're reading from the King James that there's parentheses after among us and before full of grace and truth. Typically, uh, the point of parentheses is to say that the things in the parentheses are an aside. But in my understanding, that's far from an aside. I think that's actually John's main point. But I also think that the King James may have been instead trying to signal us to an interpretation of where full of grace and truth belong. That they were trying to say that the full of grace and truth is the word. The word is full of grace and truth, not the glory itself. That point is far more feasible, but the whole point of this passage is that what character Jesus has is also what his glory is. It is a glory that is full of grace and truth precisely because it is a word that is full of grace and truth. And at this point, it would be wise for us to turn back to Exodus 33 and 34. 
We've already seen a few references, even if they're not clearly have to be, to this passage. The tabernacling among us kind of connects back to the same word that's used for the tabernacle of congregation or the tent of meeting. The idea of beholding glory reminds us that there was a glory cloud that the people could see and behold. And when John writes in chapter 118, no man hath seen God at any time, it reminds us of Exodus 33:20, cannot see my face and live. And so too, here with the idea of grace and truth, we're reminded again that in verse 18, Moses asks, Exodus 33:18, Moses is asks to see the glory of the Lord. You'd expect the burning bush. You'd expect the thunders, lightnings, and earthquakes that kept Israel afraid and prevented them from coming out Mount Sinai. But the immediate promise in Exodus 33:19, and he said, I will make all thy my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So his response is to allow his goodness to pass before and to proclaim the name of the Lord, which then comes to be a reality in Exodus 34, 5 to 7. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. As we've already hinted at, the glory of Yahweh that he shows to Moses is rooted in his character. And he mentions his justice. He starts with his mercy. At the end of verse 6, he says that he's abundant in goodness and truth, or possibly in your translation, steadfast love and faithfulness. Realistically, in neither English nor Greek is there a complete equivalent one-to-one -one idea. But one possibility is full of grace and truth. Where the goodness, the covenant loyalty, steadfast love, mercies of the Lord and his truthfulness and faithfulness are communicated via undeserved favor and truthfulness to his word. So, D.A. Carson, this pair of expression recurs again and again in the Old Testament. The two words that John uses, full of grace and truth, are his ways of summing up the same ideas. 
the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying the divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. So we think back and look back to John 1. The Exodus 34 glory is the John 1, 14 glory. The full of grace and truth that is present and is part of the explanation of the character and glory of Yahweh is what the glory of Jesus, the word made flesh, is all about. And we have intentionally spent a lot of time on verse 14. And to summarize this a little bit more, the word is now not just pre-existent and eternal. He's added to himself a human nature. He's become flesh and he is a tabernacle of Yahweh's full of grace and truth glory. A way in which we can behold the glory and character of Yahweh that we can't see in any other way. And if we begin to question how this can be so, John gives us three different explanations. And the first is in verse 15. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. In a sense, we return to the witness of John the baptizer mentioned in verses 6 to 8. But in a sense, we're actually looking beyond just the initial idea. Verses 6 to 8 could just as well be John saying, there is one coming. But verse 15 is most certainly after the one had come. Him identifying the one he had previously revealed. This was he of whom I spake. But his testimony has a bit of a riddle connected with it. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. As one commentator puts it, my successor is my superior, for he was my predecessor. Now it's not terribly riddling and puzzling to have the idea being presented that the one after could be before, could be more preeminent and prominent. This is true of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha comes after Elijah, but is the superior, at least by power and miracles, prophet. But the mystery comes in of how this one who comes after could be preferred precisely because he was before. The answer to the riddle is very well already explained in the Gospel of John. The one we're talking about created the world. There's never been a time in which he wasn't. In the beginning was the word. So certainly, though the conception, birth, and public ministry of John all precede those of Jesus, Jesus was long before. But that is significant, as already hinted at, for how he could be a tabernacle of Yahweh's glory. 
So yeah, we have the amazing privilege of being a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us, but we have that amazing privilege only because of the work of Christ. Israel had a tentative meeting outside the camp that Moses went to. When they brought the tabernacle into the camp, they had all of these rituals of cleansing and atoning for their sin necessary in order to just have the glory cloud and the tabernacle in their presence, much less actually in a person of sin and unholiness and uncleanness. A mere creature could not be the first person to be a tabernacle of the glory. And so the word, the divine word, the Son of God, who is God himself, always existing and being eternal, possesses the glory so that we could then behold in it. But even then, that only begins to explain. Possessing the glory doesn't shake it clear that we get to behold it and it doesn't make it very clear how we ever can have the New Testament promises of us being temples of souls. That then looks into explanation two. The word gives grace and truth, verses 16 to 17. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And of his fullness have all we received. What the word has, he does not keep to himself. He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Just as in verses 12 and 13, he who is the Son of God gives us the right to become children of God, so too, of his fullness, particularly in verse 17, the fullness of grace and truth, have we all received. The whole of the prologue has been pushing dependence upon Jesus Christ. And it comes in here as well in that it's of his fullness that we are receiving. There's a very real sense that of ourselves we should feel lifeless and empty. Without his work in creation and without his continued sustaining work, we would just be lifeless and empty. And without his work in new creation and sustaining work in the same, we would never be here worshiping him. Of his fullness, we have all received. As we cling to the word, we are no longer lifeless and empty. For of his fullness we have all received. So brothers and sisters, cling to Jesus Christ, cling to the word, and have him be your rooting and confidence in the midst of times of feeling insecure, because our security 
our worth is not in anything of ourselves, but in him. And if you don't know him, if you don't have this hope, cling to him. Come to respond with faith and repentance to his death and what he has done on our Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. Two different interpretations present of this expression. You can see it in some translations. It's either an addition of blessings, grace on top of grace already given, or a replacement of one grace for another grace. The explanation of the whole passage of that line comes in verse 17 which does seem to focus in on two different types of grace that center around this idea of tabernacle. So it's my understanding that it's grace in place of grace already given. It's a superior grace to make the inferior grace obsolete. For the law, verse 17 tells us, was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We could talk about the law as a grace because it restrains sin or that it reveals sin within us. But within the particular context of the tabernacle and God's glory dwelling among his people, probably more talk about the law as a grace because all of the sacrifices provide a temporary cleansing for the uncleanness and unholiness of the people so that God can dwell among them. But Christ's grace is definitely superior to that. The blood of animals could never permanently take away sins. But Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice so that any who believe can have eternal life and can behold the glory of the Lord now and forevermore. His sacrifice on the cross is no temporary cleansing, no temporary atonement and covering, but a permanent one. And so it's the case that true grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, and even more particularly, come into being through his cross. When he takes upon him the sins of the world, when he took my sin and your sin and died the punishment we deserved. And so in many ways, it's no wonder that he is the tabernacle of God's glory. Because in a very real sense, because of his fullness, we receive grace and truth. We partake of Yahweh's glory in him. Receive from Yahweh's glory because of him. But even then, John gives us one more explanation. And that is that the word explains the Father. Verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God at any time. The first particular reason that we're given as to why, in this verse I should say, that 
Jesus is a tabernacle of Yahweh's glory in which we behold is that we cannot behold anywhere else. No one has seen God. Even Moses didn't see his face. The glory of Yahweh is not something that we can just go out and observe. We need someone to declare it to us. Which then becomes the point in verse 18. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. See, we haven't seen God, but we all know someone who has. Going even back to how the prologue began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a person who is with God the Father and is himself God, partaking of that same nature, who's always had intimacy with the Father which is said even more explicitly in the expression, in the bosom of the Father. Perhaps we'd understand the 2020 version of the NASB's translation better to say, in the arms of the Father. Maybe that's an image that we can better get behind for our current context. But just as the beloved disciple leans on Jesus' chest, as a symbol that he is indeed the beloved disciple. So too, Jesus is shown to be beloved of the Father because he leans on the Father's chest. There he is in the bosom of the Father. And this one, this only begotten Son, this one who is God himself, always in intimate relationship with the Father, this one hath declared him. This is the one who has revealed him, explained him, narrated him. This one, this word made flesh, this Jesus is the very declaration, the very narration, the very revelation, and the very explanation of the Father. That in the famous passage in John 14, he can tell Philip that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Because in him we do behold the glory of the Father, in the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. At this point, it does become fairly clear why John used the word word, the Greek logos, to explain the person of the divine son. It's a fitting title for his prologue because he focuses in on the creative activity of Jesus. He's the means by which God created the world, which in scripture is the means of word being spoken. And he's the full self-expression of the father. For when I want to express myself I'm not going to use telepathy. I'm going to speak. And the same comes for you. Jesus is the full self-expression of the Father where we behold the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father and the ultimate reality of grace and truth that can only come through the Father. As we continue, 
As we even start a new year and some people are starting new Bible reading plans, as we go back to a Matthew series in a couple weeks, may we remember that when we behold the face of Jesus Christ, when we see his character, we are beholding the very glory of God in the way that he has fully expressed himself permanently to us. It's really no wonder that Jesus is a tabernacle of God's glory in light of the fact that he's always existed in intimacy with the Father and is the one by whom the grace and truth of the Father comes to any who believe. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, help us to truly believe these words. Help us to respond rightly to them. Help them to compel us to worship, to think properly at this time. Lord, I, I thank you for this chance to proclaim this, and I thank you for the visual reminder of the Lord's Supper, of his death, and how that is the covering for our sins. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>